0: The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the content providers and should not be viewed as an endorsement of any product or service, nor does it reflect the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff.
1: The following program contains topics particular to the LGBTQ plus community. Some discussions may contain mature themes. As such, listener discretion is advised. This is Pride Connection, sponsored by BlindLGBTPride.org, otherwise known as BPI, every Tuesday night at 10 p.m. on ACB Media 1 and shortly after on all your major podcast catchers.
2: Someday we'll find-
3: Okay, welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Anthony Corona, psych. This is actually Miss <laughs> Ruth, your BPI ally friend. Don't change the station. This is indeed the Pride Connection podcast, our first of the year, in fact. Not to worry, Anthony is here, as is Bryn Lee, our technical expert, expert, if you will. Uh, <laughs> our topics today were inspired by a meeting I attended that was hosted by the Commission for the Blind and Visually Impaired of New Jersey. In which Dr. David Rosen of LGBT SHC, that's LGBT Senior Housing and Care, gave a presentation entitled LGBTQ Community in New Jersey, a primer on orientation, identity, behavior, and terms. I was fascinated by how well he explained concepts such as gender identity and the spectrum of letters in the acronym LGBTQIA+. So I emailed Anthony, and I suggested that Dr. Rosen appear as a guest on our podcast, and voila, here we are together. And at this point, I'd like to do some intros. So briefly, please, tell us your preferred name, pronouns, and a brief description. I'll start to give you an idea. My name is Miss Ruth, no last name, like share. Uh, my pronouns are she, hers. I'm a straight, white, cisgender woman embarking on her golden years, age unspecified. Thank you. I've got red hair with white streaks throughout. I'm wearing uh, blue green glasses that match the color of my eyes, but I'm not the least bit vain. Don't you know? So let's go around the room, starting with our new president, Leah Gardner, President Gardner.
0: Thank you, Miss Ruth. Um, That was a really stellar introduction. I'm not quite sure if I can live up to that. Um, (laughs) My pronouns are she and her. I really can't give you too much of a description other than I have a buzz cut that is becoming more gray than brown It seems like every day the gray hairs are accumulating and uh, I'm wearing a very old Boston Red Sox t-shirt right now and uh, an old frayed pair of pants because at the moment I am in Florida visiting family. So at least for the time being, I'm enjoying warm weather. And uh, now, should we move it to our Vice President, Anthony?
1: Well, I am antastic, Anthony. <laughs> um, <laughs> a devastatingly gorgeous Italian man. Um, <laughs> also in Florida. My pronouns are he, him. I am a very out and proud gay man. As Leah just said, I'm the first Vice President of BPI. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation tonight.
2: Uh, my name is Bryn Lee, and I'm on the board of BPI. I have dark brown hair and sort of like a pixie cut. I have blue glasses. I am a white trans woman, 41 years old, and I am wearing a black T-shirt with a cool, like gray, sort of faded colored uh, square pocket thing on the on the front. So that's what I look like.
3: Thank you kindly. Uh, now, if we may, Dr. Rosen.
4: Good evening, everyone. My name is David Rosen, my pronouns are he, him. I am a cisgender gay white male. I just turned 50 this past uh, year, so I'm getting my AARP email barrage uh, that I'm <laughs> ignoring. I am uh, about 5'10", brown hair. Uh, I wear glasses. Um I can't even tell you the color of them. I've been—I don't—I don't don't really (laughs) pay attention. I think they're—I think they're black or or dark brown, Um, and I have a salt and pepper goatee.
3: Thank you, Amy Simon.
5: Please. Good evening. Thank you for inviting us to join you tonight. My name is Amy Simon. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I am a Jewish. Caucasian cisgender woman. I uh, live most of my life as a straight woman and I'm um, more fluid these days. I am uh, five feet tall with a six-foot personality, uh, 63 <laughs> years old, a mother, and I have, I'd like to say naturally blonde hair, but that isn't really the case. (laughs) And I, too, wear glasses because, as I said, I'm 62 years old.
3: God bless. I love that. Five feet tall, six feet personality. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That's very good. So now um, President Gardner will give her first speech as president of BPI.
0: Well, it is a brand new year and it seems like 2022 just sped by us so fast. I'm glad to be with all of you this evening and I'm honored to be president of Blind LGBTQ plus Pride. I'm going to keep this very short because we have two spectacular guests this evening and, um, I'm looking forward to hearing both of them speak and uh, David's presentation. If you want to learn anything more about what we do here at BPI, if this is your first time hearing the show, or uh, you would like to get in contact and give us any kind of feedback, you could email membership at blindlgbtpride.org. It's all one word, no hyphens. Membership at blindlgbtpride.org, or you can visit our website at www.blindlgbtpride.org. I hope that all of you are stepping into what will be a fantastic year. BPI has lots of great ideas and uh, plans for the upcoming year, and uh, we all hope that this is going to be a year to remember for many wonderful reasons.
3: Well, thank you so much. That was terrific. I I agree with that. We have two terrific guests. And I'd like to open the discussion today with Amy Simon, if possible, to just tell us a bit about LGBT senior housing and care and the importance of having a specific focus on the needs of elders in the LGBT community as
5: they age.
3: Ms. Simon, if you would.
5: Thank you, Miss Ruth. It's my pleasure to uh, share with you the work we're doing at LGBT Senior Housing and Care. We were founded in the late days of 2015, early 2016, when I was working as the communications director, which is PR and and promotion, a little bit of sales, and organizational uh, support for a long-term care community. And the executive director was very progressive, and she wanted to be more inclusive of the LGBTQ plus older adult community. So she had her staff take a course from SAGE. SAGE is a nationally respected LGBTQ um, advocacy group for uh, elders in the community, in the nation. Uh, They have tremendous programs and a really great education program as well. Everyone should look them up. And she asked me to communicate to the marketplace that she had done this training. And I said to her, it's fabulous. This is really exciting. What are you doing for the LGBTQ community here at your facility? And she couldn't answer that question. At the time, there was little resources uh, on how to implement the knowledge about LGBTQ uh, older adults. She asked me to put together a focus group, uh, which I did, which included long-term care administrators from the tri-state area, tri-state, New York, New Jersey, and Philadelphia, to get community members together and some of the advocacy groups in the state and to discuss what should be done? What programs can be implemented to support LGBTQ elders in long-term care? And we started to put together a program of things that were needed, experiences, health care, support, communications, sales and marketing, all the kinds of things that are standard practice for the straight community and um, to include LGBTQ persons in those programs. A couple years later, and we had expos, we had um, open to the community, everybody came together. It was a really exciting time. And then as happens in long-term care uh, businesses, the community was purchased by a larger conglomerate, and they, in their wisdom, decided They didn't want the LGBTQ program and they were going to bring in their own communications team. So I said, excellent. I would like to take LGBT senior housing and care with me as part of my exit. And they were fine with that, which was great. And I immediately incorporated as an LLC and engaged a number of people from the task force. Dr. David Rosen was one of those persons, (laughs) and um, we took our act on the road, and we really built out over time the education programs, the services. We increased our team, and uh, we helped support legislation in the state of New Jersey that requires all long-term care facilities to have LGBTQ older adult training, which they call the LGBTQ uh, Long-Term Care Bill of Rights. And there's other elements in it that um, complement the training aspect. And we've been servicing that need in the state. And we also branched out to train any professional provider who comes in contact with Adults and older adults in the country in LGBTQ needs and services, legal services, real estate services, adult daycare, recreation. What else do we do Um um, home care, uh, we're working with the New Jersey Alzheimer's Association to help with specific needs of the Alzheimer's and caregivers community. So we've really expanded our uh, menu of education and services to bring awareness that the LGBTQ plus community is a combination of intersectional elements that have special needs to be served equitably. And when a community is served equitably, then equality is the result of that effort. Oftentimes people say, well, we treat everyone the same. We treat everyone equally. We're doing everything right. Hmm. And it's important for everyone to know, as I'm sure is the experience with the visually impaired community, you can't treat everyone equally. You must treat each person from where they come. That's right. So that is the birth story of LGBT senior housing and care. And now David and I are partners in this effort, this national effort.
3: Fantastic. ties.
5: <laughs> preach. Preach.
3: That's right.
5: Terrific.
3: That is so good. And know it's interesting because when you were saying, talking about focus groups and, you know, asking what would be needed to support and provide care for LGBT seniors, I had an email today from the Administration of Community Living. It was talking about braiding together services for various groups that needed special care. And I noticed that LGBT community is not on their list. It says they provide uh, cross-sector partnerships to increase access to accessible, affordable housing, supportive services for people with disabilities, older adults, and people at risk of experiencing homelessness. But how do you get us on the list? Can you get LGBT concerns, at least in front of somebody who makes those decisions?
5: Well, it's interesting because the LGBTQ plus yeah. community is not a protected class. So yeah. nowhere in governmental language and oh. services yeah. is, is there an effort to fund and provide specialized services. And it's only been, I mean, the work under the Biden administration has been incredible. And, um, yet. Uh, we are still not a protected class, and so often overlooked. Now, being LGBTQ plus is not a disability; it is an incredible ability. Right. So, people do not understand that, as with any persons, any cis you know, straight human being, there's so many more elements to the human being, race, religion, culture, country of origin, you know, language, color, um, state they live in. So there, there are all these differences that require a person to be treated individually, to be interfaced with as a combination of all those elements that they are and being LGBTQ or being straight is just one of your elements of intersectionality. Uh, We are really out there trying to get, you know, cisgender straight, mostly white people, mostly white men at the top of the food chain to understand, Mm -hmm. to have equality, you must service with equity. And these are the needs of the LGBTQ plus adult and older adult community.
3: Right. And that does make me wonder too, is there a way to make people realize the sort of ridiculousness of the statement, I treat everybody the same. I'm not doing anything wrong. Where where can you go with someone like that? Or are they simply a closed door?
5: No, no, because people who say that are speaking from their heart. They really feel that they are being open and welcoming to the community. They just don't know yet. So we explain um, using one's own intersectionality. Well, who are you speaking with? What race are you? What religion are you? What gender are you? Uh, you know, do you live in the city? Do you live in the country? Do you feel you've had access, the same access to services? Are there certain things you and your family experience more than you think somebody else of a different race or a different gender or different experiences? When you break that down, you go, see, I like to do my um, my equity image with, when I'm on the road with our assistant, our administrative assistant, Logan, she's six foot tall. like I said, I only think I am six years old. So I usually end the presentation by saying, this is equity. You know, here's a tree over Logan and myself. And Logan can just take an apple. And I'm jumping up and down, the 62-year-old woman, you know, jumping up and down trying to get the apple. And I pull up a chair and I stand on the chair and then I can reach the apple. I say, this chair is equity. And we're looking for you to provide the chair or the stool for others to reach the same goal. So,
3: Oh, that's a good metaphor. I love that. I love that one.
5: And it's quite entertaining.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I can just picture that.
5: Yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We did a program a couple of years ago that morphed into a conversation we never even dreamed of, And it was, it it turned into speaking about older aging within the LGBTQ community and how a lot of folks go back into the closet, especially for assisted living situations. Have you encountered much of that?
5: Well, we work with the providers of the care more than the community themselves. So we have, you know, data. That um, we use in our training that shows conclusively that people do go back into the closet. They have choices, right? Can choose to be out and to continue to be out when they go into care and, and, you know, take on the discrimination and bias that comes, you know, and always comes (laughs) with communal living. Or they can, you know, go back into the closet. And protect themselves from their fears of, of that discrimination and bias. And if they have never come out of the closet and they go into long-term care, communal living, housing situation, they can stay in the closet. So they really choose, you know, how they want to protect themselves as they age. And what we want to do is break down that data and say let's create places where that are affirming and welcoming that communicate they are affirming and welcoming where everyone that interfaces with the facility or the service is trained to know what that means and a person can feel welcome it's still a question these days Most of your elders in some care situation are, you know, late seventies, eighties, even nineties, as David explains in our training. These are the people that the LGBTQ elder went to high school with and was bullied by or was hiding from. And then they're going and living with these same people. Again, and they're very afraid. So it's up to the staff and the administration and the healthcare providers to be really well trained and for the other residents to be trained in a different way of uh, more empathetic towards the community. It's going to be a long haul. It's not something. Uh, providers of care voluntarily, you know, take the time to do. And we're trying to jump over that hurdle in a couple of different ways, you know, short of getting other states to draft legislation, because only three states in the country has legislation requiring LGBTQ training for senior care providers. And there wow. are different types of legislation. And we're so our country is, you know, now, once again, a federation of states with much more power being passed down from the Supreme Court as it sits now and will sit for our lifetimes for states to take control of some of these decisions. So it's very important that we get the Equality Act passed in Congress. Without the Equality Act and the federal mandate to uh, provide equal access, equal services, equity, and care across the spectrum, right now it's only in in uh, housing and David, correct me, housing and education. What is currently protected? The Civil it's, Rights Act. It's uh, yeah,
4: no, it's only employment. Um, The decision in 2020 that came from the Supreme Court said that if you have companies with 20 or more employees, you can't discriminate Mm -hmm. on the basis of sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression. The problem is you can have a company with 19 employees, and it's completely legal for you to do it if your state does not have a statewide protection. So New Jersey has a statewide protection. So it's irrelevant as to whether or not, you know, a company in New Jersey has 18 staff or 25 staff. They have to follow the law against discrimination, which includes the LGBTQ plus community. But states that don't have a statewide protection then get the LGBTQ community in those states need the federal protection, because the state is not providing it. The Equality Act would actually add health care and housing to that. Yeah.
0: Basically, what you're saying is that, let's say a, a facility in Alabama that has 12 employees, you know, maybe a very small facility, they're very driven by what the state of Alabama does and they're not going to be compelled in any way to follow the the strictures and and protections that a resident of a facility in New Jersey might have all because of the state laws correct
4: yes so Alabama does not have any health um, right. any statewide protections for the LGBTQ+ plus community in any area but the scotus gave protections to employees of any agency in alabama that has more 20 or more people but not to the residents this is an employment protection mm-hmm. that scotus granted federally the problem is that 12 person facility that you're talking about they don't have to provide any care that's lgbtq affirming to the residents but they can also fire staff who are LGBTQ plus. They have only twelve staff
5: just for being themselves.
4: So, yes, that based on the uh, on the gender um, or on the sexual orientation of the employee, not you know if they did something you know warranting disciplinary action. But the idea is that it's a state by state battle, unless you have congressional legislation that can basically even the playing field.
5: And in this political era, that legislation can be, you know, litigated and taken up to this Supreme court, same fears they have for Mm. marriage equality. um, And they could find it unconstitutional. So, it's an incredibly fluid situation for the LGBTQ community of all ages, and they will have different rights in different states, and there are different uh, rights that are threatened from the high court right now, which is why our our training to the legal profession <laughs> is so important because they're the ones that advise their clients on jobs and housing and marriage and wills and estates and if they have to move and, you know, how to protect their them and their families. You know, adoption rules uh, are not uh, equal in all states. So it's the Equality Act will not be the panacea, but it certainly will help uh, the community navigate their lives in this country with some kind of equity.
4: There are real real world implications and consequences for anti-LGBTQ attitudes and stigma that resonate in states that are not progressive enough to provide the statewide protections. 2013, Columbia University, so just a decade ago, They did a study about the consequences of anti-LGB. Now, granted, they didn't look at transgender individuals, but every study that has ever been done on transgender individuals shows a magnification of whatever the issue is. So, But I can only tell you what the study says, right? So the study is talking about lesbian, gay, bisexual prejudice on mortality and what they found was that there was a shorter life expectancy of 12 years on average for LGB individuals who lived in communities with high stigma. Mm. And that means that those states that don't have protection will have a higher likelihood of issues related to stigma. What they, when they drilled down, they found suicide, homicide and violence, and cardiovascular disease were substantially elevated in those high-prejudice communities. And why cardiovascular? What what does heart disease have? Exactly. So we're talking about people who emotionally are devastated, so the suicide issue. We're talking about the hatred of communities creating violence against a person, but the stress of living in an area where you're anticipating at any moment in time that something might happen to you does wear on the body over a lifespan. So we need to be really aware that yes, these laws against discrimination, they can't stop stigma. That's very clear. Stigma and discrimination are different. Stigma has to do with an emotional violence, if you will. But it's just emotional. When you're talking about discrimination, you're removing resources from someone. And the easiest way to describe that is is essentially if you have a gym and you have a locker room and you have, say, a transgender woman goes into the women's locker room and all the cisgender women who are patrons of the gym freeze, stare at her, snarl and leave all en masse. Well, that transgender woman has a choice in that moment. She can get changed, go out into the gym, use the weights, do her free cycle, whatever, right? She could use all of the resources of the gym. She might feel really uncomfortable and upset, which causes stress, but she does have the resources. Or she could leave and self Remove the resources, but that's on her. She makes the decision, right, as to whether she's going to stay or leave. But if that gym owner decides in that moment, oh no, I'm not sacrificing my gym population for that transgender woman, I'm going to ban her from it. Well, that's discrimination because no matter what the transgender woman wanted, whether she wanted to stay or felt emotionally distraught and wanted to leave. She no longer has a say in in, in that. The gym owner has now discriminatorily removed resources from her. So what the laws against discrimination really do is it leaves it in in the hands of LGBTQ plus people to decide how they want to handle and manage the stigma and the stress. Without that discrimination protection, though, then they get both whammies at the same time. And what we're trying to do, again, is equity to lead to equal outcome. And we have to then have these laws in order to equalize the access to the resources. So that way, it's now going to be up to us to decide how we're going to navigate a hostile environment that's hostile emotionally. Does that make sense?
3: Absolutely. And,
5: and also, the facility or the provider, how they're going to handle the other clients and their bias. So, bias is a feeling learned or or innate that leads to stigma. How, how you you know respond or react which then leads to discrimination, which is the action. So that's also an easy way to think about the flow of um, discrimination and bias. That's why we're saying it's not a panacea, but everybody should vote for the Equality Act and get your Congress, your senator and your congressman to all vote congresspersons for the Equality Act. We can at least change the action. And then we have a fighting chance of trying to normalize for your cis hetero persons how it is to be with the community.
1: Right. Correct me if I'm wrong, but there are studies out there that show that once you have gotten equal protection, it does filter back, it sort of turn the tide back the other way. And there's, it, it leads to less stigma and less bias.
4: Yes, that is the case, that when you have communities that have legislative protections, what you do see is a reduction in homicide and violence, suicide, and the restriction of resources. doesn't eliminate it. And that's something that's very key, because people who fight against these laws of d- discrimination say you can't legislate against how people feel. That is right. true. Right, But when you're forced through legislation to not isolate in your little bubble where you have to actually get to know people because everyone now has access to this public accommodation, over time, more and more people will start to change how they feel as they get more comfortable and used to people who are different from themselves.
5: When I realized nothing has happened to them.
4: (laughs) I often tell
1: an example, when I was in high school, you know, the idea of having a prom king and king or queen and queen was unheard of. It it just would never have happened. And I visited my high school 10 years later, and they had two prom queens, you know. And so, you Mm -hmm. know, in the space of 10 years, the work that we were all doing at the time filtered enough that, you know, there were two prom queens.
5: Yeah, it, it, it does. It takes a long time, but it does. And now moving our attention to the transgender community and especially the trans community of color, especially trans women of color, which are just women of color again. It's times, you know, a hundred. Uh, what's happening to that community and the way the community is being used as a rallying point yeah. to yeah. withhold equity to the rest of the community is, you know, it's just craziness.
3: Yeah. I was just going to say all this at a time when gender affirming care is under attack and, you know, cares yeah. about marriage equality, it's such a strange time in history to have to go backwards in time and have to refight battles that we thought we had won, Right. I'm sorry, Bryn, go ahead.
2: Sure. So I have sort of a comment and and it will probably morph into a question here, but I've just been thinking about, you know, in my job, I assist seniors who are visually impaired and some of them live at home with their families or independently. And then some are living in facilities and some of these facilities are nice. They, they have things like a little salon or they have activities Uh, They have a community and they have independence and things that they can do, but some of them feel very uh, restrictive. The people who work there often are doing the bare minimum of getting you your meds and taking care of your medical needs, and um, that's it. They're not there to socialize with you. They're not there to make sure that you get the gender-affirming things that you need, like clothing and getting your nails painted or or any of that stuff, getting the medication that you need for gender-affirming care could also be difficult I'm just I'm imagining as a trans person when I you know get to that point where I'm trying to figure out where I'm going to live and what I'm going to do some of these facilities are far from caring about things like being having that independence to get your hair done or have your nails done or uh, get something cute or nice or whatever they just kind of do their rounds and they don't really talk to you they don't take care of you so the thing that I guess I'm concerned about is, is specifically for for trans people who need gender affirming care in more than just the medical, like the psychological part of being trans is doing things that affirm your gender and they're not getting that. Um, what, what sorts of things are being done to maybe uh, combat that or to um, address it?
5: Well, in New Jersey, the legislation, the uh, Bill of Rights uh, covers those issues, those quality of life, uh, mental and physical health issues for all long-term care communities in the state. But that is um, a long process and not all communities have the same resources. So your private communities, your Medicaid communities. Um, in the long-term care space, um, communities are being purchased by large conglomerates. Um, so they're running them, nonprofit and for-profit alike, to squeeze out every dollar for their stakeholders or to show to the boards um, and padding executive salaries. What's going on in that um, industry right now is not regulated enough by the federal government. The underclothing was shown voraciously during COVID, with all the deaths and all the the limits of care that were borne out. So we're dealing in that one. Organizational structure and that one care kind of dynamic with real issues in that, you know, service sector. So overlaying it with, you know, now we want you to be LGBTQ affirming and welcoming and do all those things is really, really difficult. And in the business, they talk about heads in the bed. Well, since COVID, they lost a lot of heads in the bed and for it's an endemic. So it's, it's continuing and uh, older adults are trying to stay in their homes a lot longer and families are trying to keep them out of long-term care, except for those that are like the love boat, you know, if anyone's old enough to remember that show. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, (laughs) So It's a really challenged industry and legislation is really helpful to mandate this work. But we are looking to get this work in their heads through offering continuing education credits for all this study at a good price so that, you know, everybody who works in the field has to do certain hours of continuing education So we're trying to make this information attractive to them as a way to get those credits. So that's a national push we have going on. And also the marketplace. There's anywhere between 4% and 9.6% in the District of Columbia of openly identified LGBTQ people in the states. We think it's much more, just anecdotally you know, so many people aren't open. And so I believe at least 10% of um, the nation and other people concur, but I don't have data because we can't, there isn't the studies to collect the data really well, but uh, that's a marketplace for for senior services, for the long-term care community. So we're trying to identify in each state, each county, with each perspective opportunity, the number of community members, and then the people around those community members who will want to purchase services from an LGBTQ welcoming environment. You know, the community really, you know, if they find a product that's really affirming and welcoming, everybody's going to know about it. So there's... (laughs) really inherent marketing, just person to person. So trying to get people to do this work, to learn about this issue, just, you know, through an untapped market as business is one of the ways we try to get in while we're waiting for the political tides to turn. I don't think I'm going to be alive long enough to see real progressive, proactive country where this is just normal care. So we're trying any way in we can. And it's important as we're aging, when we think about where we want to be, that we identify the facilities, if we're going to go into facility or the adult daycare or the home care services. And then at the end of days, hospice services that are trained. To take care of us and take care of the community and be, you know, have done the work and are committed.
4: I think that we need to be focusing our attention on organizations as well. So, say, for instance, um, any of the associations, say for the visually impaired and blind, right? How many of these organizations actually ask questions of their membership for um, sexual orientation or gender identity? How many nursing homes, long-term care facilities ask questions on intake related to the sexual orientation or gender identity? If we don't have the data, we can't go to the legislators in different states or Congress and demand change based on evidence. We can use anecdotes, but anecdotes don't generally push policy. The NIH and the National Institute on Aging did, conducted the first national study on LGBTQ elders in 2011. There hasn't been one since.
5: Actually, though, David, I met a person from NIH at the convention in Atlantic City who said that they've been doing some studies on their own, you know, through the prior administration, the Trump administration, where everything was shut down. They kept back all the material they'd been working on during the Obama administration. Um, They're trying, been trying to do work, and they've been sort of resuscitating it under the Biden administration. So there was four years where nothing formally was done, but these great humans at NIH were trying to keep some of the programs they had open still going without being caught. (laughs)
4: Sure, and that's good because they're gaining the data. Right, but we're not going to
5: see it for a little
4: while. Right, is that we need the data, In order to demonstrate, so say from the 2011 report, it shows that all LGBTQ plus respondents, so we're talking LGBTQ elders, right? In 2011, 39% had suicide ideation. But when you looked at just transgender respondents, it jumped to 71%. Now that's, you know, 12 years ago. Wow. And that was before you had the slew of over 200 laws going through different state legislatures, all focused in on anti- taking
5: rights away, uh,
4: from- rights away from the transgender community. So what will that do to depression? Depression, 48% for transgender individuals versus 31% for the entire LGBTQ plus community. Anxiety 39% versus 25%. I know those numbers, numbers are going to
5: be off the charts. They're gonna be Each off. Each
4: of them. these numbers show the transgender community when they were not in the crosshairs of legislatures because they weren't in twenty eleven. Let's face it. We were really having the conversation about marriage equality. We weren't really focusing in on banning transgender rights in, you know, in in bathroom access and stuff in 2011. It happened later than that. Mm -hmm. So in 2011, you see this disparity. What is it now, 12 years later? Mm -hmm. And what can we then do and where do we have to focus our resources on fixing the, at least the access to resources in different areas? We can't do it without this data. And so we have to look at our own organizations, our associations asking, you know, that I belong to NASW. No one's ever asked me if I'm gay on, you know, when I joined the association. So how do they know how many social workers there are who are, you know, self-identify as LGBTQ plus if you don't actually give an opportunity for the question.
3: Well, Ms. Ruth if I may, David, how how would people respond if they were asked their sexual orientation or gender identity so that it wouldn't be used against them in some way?
4: Well, you don't have to answer, number one, right? When you have race and ethnicity questions, there's a box that says no. And there are definitely racists out there that could use the information. Yeah. Um, and what we've done is we've Normalized asking the question when it comes to race and ethnicity. They didn't ask those questions in the 1960s and 50s, but we've normalized it so that in 2023, we don't think twice. We don't bat an eye about answering about your race or ethnicity. So what would start happening? Yes, it'll be a little awkward and uncomfortable at first. Some people will be offended, but I guarantee in 10 years, if it's on every single survey for the next 10 years, people will start just answering it.
5: And it's the only way because administrations come and go. Presidents come and go. And what NIH can do under one president, they can't do under another president. So if we don't do this ourselves with our organizations, we're never going to get anywhere. We're never going to know. Right.
4: We need then to build up first the the numbers, meaning the the information at the ground. How many of us are there? What are our needs? Making certain we have that information, then we can go to the states and start trying to force the protections. And but if are- we don't have the information, we're not going to get far.
5: And there are right. contact clues in an intake form that you can use. Prefixes, pronouns, uh, types of marriages, spouse's name, legal name, chosen name, those types of things. Things that are a little less confronting than, are you cisgender? Are you, you know, and check off the box, you know, with some, some people don't even understand what those questions mean, but they'll see what's familiar to them. So if you have someone who said their, their spouse instead of their husband or wife's name and you can make assumptions or, you know, legal name, chosen name, what does that mean? Someone will say, and you say, well, if you have a chosen name, for some, it could be a nickname. For some, it's a chosen name, you know? Right. So you, there's other ways in your intake form to collect some clues if a person doesn't want to check off LGBTQ. So
0: I think, I think you're, this is Leah. So Amy and David, it seems like you are saying that these types of questions, we need to start embedding them in various intake forms or profiles. I think it's going to take time because I think people need to start trusting that that information is not going to be used at any kind of malicious Pushback for them, but I would say I, I do think we are starting to see that. I think in most organizations that I join, there are always demographic questions because a lot of those organizations get grants and they have to answer those questions to the best of their ability. There, they are all optional. I'm also seeing, um, for instance, I um, take Uber and Lyft a lot, and I'm starting to see when I get a driver's profile, more and more I'm seeing so and so identifies as she slash her or they slash them. I'm seeing that a, a a lot more now than I did even even a year ago. I'm being asked a lot more now, for instance, I checked into a hotel and I was asked, you know, what are your gender pronouns? I see it this taking shape slowly. But I'm wondering about, I'm still wondering about the, the trust dynamic and the quality of the data that we're going to get for a couple years as this embedding kind of takes root. Are we getting enough data right now that we can trust those figures? Because well, I suspect a lot of people are not disclosing.
4: But that's, that's the thing. What do you need to trust the data about? We know that people aren't going to be disclosing there will be people who choose not to disclose. Mm -hmm. But whatever we get as a baseline is going to be underreported on, you know, like a lower number, right? But we need to know what that lower number is. If we know that the number of people in New Jersey, say, who identify as LGBTQ plus is 4.3%, and we know that that's an underreporting, That's a significant, that means that, okay, maybe it's five, maybe it's six, but at the minimum, it's 4.3. And we need to start getting baselines of our community. The data doesn't have to be perfect, it just needs to establish that a need exists.
5: Yeah, so we can start funding that need.
4: People will not necessarily trust that the data is, or that the data won't be used against them. And that's their right. But some will. And those who do trust it, those who are willing to take the risk, will shoulder the burden until such a time as others can come in. The -hmm. people who had to to circle Philadelphia's City Hall from the Mattachine Society in 19... in 1950s, was it nineteen? No, early nineteen sixties. I don't know that I could have done that. The bravery they had doing that was incredible. But because they did that, it led to additional movements. The the you know Compton riot, um, Stonewall, that eventually landed in little twenty year old me feeling like he could come out and have a life in the early 90s. That's the way it works. So we have to start somewhere. And And this is where we can start getting the numbers.
5: You can can do your optional questions on your intake forms, and you can send out anonymous surveys. We send out anonymous pre-training assessments to everyone who registers for one of our trainings. And, you know, 50% maybe do them. And we ask Mm. demographic stuff. We consistently get 9% identifying Mm. from the half who do the, who show up. Now, can we say, you know, well, what are the, you know, the qualities of a person who will do an anonymous pre-assessment survey? You know, is that committed? (laughs) But we can't break it down like that, but to start and it shows, you know, it's shown us I just talk about New Jersey, that in New Jersey, senior health care, 9% of the providers are from the community. You know, that's what our data shows. There's probably more.
1: And that's that's how a lot of programs, you know, during the Depression era, and of course, FDR, and that's how a lot of the programs began because they didn't have concrete data, but they used whatever disclosing data they had at the time to build projected models. So in a sense, it's, it's sort of the scientific method of, of, you know, getting rights.
5: I mean, we have people today of Asian descent who don't check off their race on their college applications because there's a whole movement about too many Asians getting into school or something. I mean, so we're, you know, our country is, reg, has regressed as we've politicized intersectional elements of the community more, you know, I think more now than any time since, you know, the civil rights era. And it, so it's a challenge. It's a challenge. Our best bet is, as David said, for our organizations just to normalize it, pronouns, pronouns, Ask for your pronouns. And hospitality industry, I'm glad to hear that you were asked for pronouns. Mm -hmm. Hospitality, they market in serving each person with equity. Make that client happy and welcome, and they're going to come back. We should all take a lesson from the hospitality industry. Green does not discriminate.
1: Exactly. And they also tell (laughs) five of their friends. So, you know, I I worked in, in the hospitality industry for a long time. And you know, wisdom of, of ages is, you know, that customer is going to talk to five other customers for a good experience and 10 other customers for a bad experience. More than
5: 10 because they're just going to go on Yelp and blow you out of the water. So.
1: Yeah. All right, Miss Ruth, we are, we are at that hour mark.
3: So as we get to the end of our podcast, I'd like to thank our wonderful guests, Amy Simon, and Dr. David Rosen of LGBT Senior Housing and Care for being with us. And we hope this is just the beginning of a meaningful conversation around these important issues. We learned so much and we've been given so much to think about. Thank you all for coming.
4: Thank you for having us. Thank you. Happy New Year, everyone. Take good
3: care. Happy New Year.
4: You've been listening to
1: Pride Connection, sponsored by Blind Pride International, a special interest affiliate of the American Council of the Blind. Please check us out at blindlgbtpride.org.